If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome everyone to a Baseball America podcast. This is a special Top 100 Roundtable edition. I'm John Manuel, joined by Matt Eddy, J.J. Cooper, and Ben Badler. I don't know why I went in reverse alphabetical order by last name, but that's how it went. Um, we want to welcome you all to this podcast. We hope you enjoyed the Top 100 uh, dropped on Friday, the Top 50 show on MLB Network, and the whole Top 100, and we're you know, adding to it today here on Monday, uh, talking Top 100 ranking philosophies and how we all rank prospects. So little intro for everybody. I mean, if you're a Baseball America subscriber, or maybe if you're a reader or you're a podcast listener, maybe you know some of this, but maybe you don't. Um, but the four of us, I mean, uh, uh, I don't know if we should call ourselves core four now. We don't have any rings. But uh, the four of us have been around Baseball America for a while, for a combined close to 50 years uh, between say, the four many, of us. How many top hundreds have you been involved with, John? I can't remember the first time they let me in the meeting. <laughs> since since <laughs> it in Callis didn't always used to let me in the meetings <laughs> when I was the college guy. So I would guess 2002, somewhere around there, when it was when I was first involved. So I wasn't involved in too many before you came around. Right, because I, I remember the first year I like was allowed to essentially observe the process. I right. think the, for the 03 one, it was like, you could be in the room just like like a child at the uh, at a, at a, you yeah, know, the kids at a Thanksgiving table. dinner. It was like just be seen, not heard. I felt like I was at the kids' table for a long time because you know the first, we just started doing. I mean, I was I wrote two teams in the first handbook in two thousand um, Giants and Blue Jays, I guess. But when they did the top hundred meeting, I think I was out of town at a college baseball event. So I mean, I was the college beat writer at that time. At those times, we didn't cross the streams. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we didn't mix too very often. You're on and the amateur side, so stay on the amateur. That's kind of how it was. But Matt joined the editorial staff in 2006, but you joined the magazine, what, 2001? Yeah, 2000. 2000. Mm-hmm. In the year 2000. Oh, I'll leave that to JJ. <laughs> in the year 2000. <laughs> Thank you. But Ben interned in what, summer of 07, Ben? Was that it? Yeah, it started in 2007. And uh, full-time, soon thereafter, I can't remember if it was late 2007 or early 2008. But uh, um, So we've all been around a while. We've all been involved in this for a while. The last, I guess, three years has been the four of us with our individual top 50s in the prospect handbook. And, you know, generally at Baseball America, we try to we, – we were, we're reporters. We're not scouts. We go to a lot of games. We certainly have experience and can pick up things the games. There are – evaluations we could make on our own watching games watching video but we're not evaluators we're reporters i think all four of us i do believe start with that where our evaluations come from our own personal observations and then using those observations to ask the right questions 
but also just are viewing the game through that scouting and player development prism and then kind of having the contacts in the industry to discuss these players with. So I think for all four of us, it starts that way. I guess the first question I'd ask is, how much, how much does your own personal observations go into it? Uh, I'll start with you, Ben, because I mean you're in the Northeast. You're based in Boston. The rest of us are based here in North Carolina. How often do you uh, rely on your own personal observation? Because it seems like that happens more with the Cubans that you watch a lot of video and a lot of games of the Cubans where you're actually able to ask really informed questions of the scouts who see these players. But a lot of times those you've seen those players almost more than some of the scouts have, haven't you? Yeah, I think it just depends on the the player we're talking about. It's always the it's always a mixture of the two. But yeah, like we're talking with a Cuban player, with, you know, the Dodgers just signed uh, the the teenage outfielder Eusenio Diaz, and this was a kid who played only one season in Cuba. But fortunately, I was able to watch him take. I think it was uh, over the course of about six or seven months between September 2014 and uh, March uh, 2015. So basically right before he left, I was able to see him take 145 uh, plate appearances. Wow. So, uh, That's a good look. It's, it's, yeah, if, if you can't figure out a guy, uh, or at least his current skill set after that long, it's probably time to find something else to do. So, you know, what, what, what he turns out in the future, there's always going to be risk in terms of, you know, you, you can know the guy, uh, as well as anybody, and, and watch him play every day. There's no guarantee about his future, but obviously, when you see a guy play that much, uh, th- that makes you feel pretty confident, uh, at least about uh, being able to evaluate what he is right now, which is really the baseline that you need to use to project a guy going forward. But for you know guys in the minor leagues, it's, it's different. Yeah, some guys you're you're able to see quite a bit. Other guys not at all, and, and some guys somewhere in between. But yeah, it's, it, I think it's. You know, I think it's arrogant, frankly, to to go in and, and see a guy once or even twice and think you have them all figured out. I think we try to stay away from doing that. You know, you go and, and see a player, and uh, you, it helps form your opinion on that player, and it helps you ask better questions of uh, the scouts and, and people who are working in player development who uh, who see these guys throughout the year and see these guys, you know, sometimes on a – a daily basis. So uh, I think a large part of it is, is being able to have that, that large network of, of scouting and player development contacts that we have throughout the industry who are seeing these guys on a, on a daily basis or, or on a regular basis throughout the year uh, and are able to, to keep tabs on them. I, I think of a guy like, uh, you know, for example, Alex Verdugo, who uh, the, the Dodgers outfielder who, you know, if, if we talk to a scout about him, in the, the first half of the season, or, or if you saw him in the first half of the season, you're going to get completely different reports, uh, especially in terms of the ability to to hit and the, the future hit tool projection than you would if you talked to somebody or saw him in the second half because he really changed his hitting mechanics and, and overhauled his approach between the first half and the second half. You, you can look at the numbers and, and see it reflected in there. It's, it's good to see the performance data back up the changes that – scouts are seeing on the field and that the coaches are seeing on the field in terms of the changes that he's making. So you really have to get as, as much information as possible from as many different sources as you can, whether it's seeing the person yourself, uh, seeing the player yourself. Uh, but a lot of it is 
uh, using that extensive network of, of scouting contacts we have uh, to keep tabs on these guys throughout the year. That's a great answer because it was such a thorough answer. Um, but it really does, Matt and JJ, both you guys. I, I feel like you guys watch a lot of video. I know JJ watches a ton of video because I, we, you know, we're in the corridor of power there where the, our offices are connected. <laughs> but Matt, I've seen you watching the video as well. But I would say that uh, among the four of us, you have, I think, the most data, as far as statistical data. I think you, I, I lean on you when I have statistical data questions about players. So I, I feel like of the four of us, if there was a spectrum, you're most toward that side. But I also feel like you talk to scouts. You try, it feels like you try to use that statistical data to have scouts explain this guy's performance level was this to this level. How did he do it? It feels like that's a, a, a drive some of your reports, maybe more than mine. Yeah, and that, and that sort of information is easiest to apply during the, the league top 20 prospects rankings. Right. All the players are in the same context. But when you're, when you're talking organizations, you're talking six different levels of the minors. Um, yeah, and I think you're right. I think, if anything, I lean not at all on personal observation and probably too much on performance, you know, Excel information. Right. But <laughs> your I, Excel that, spreadsheet is a thing of beauty. And that's probably my flaw. That's probably my, my, my biggest weakness. But, but, I do, but I do definitely incorporate information from evaluators because they see players and know what to look for and what not to look for, and that's valuable. Yeah, I, I do think I, I I like the idea of um, when I want to know what a player looked like, I can go to JJ. You always help me find the video <laughs> if I need the video. Usually, I don't need that. It's not that hard to find video players anymore. Right. But I love that that league top twenties. I mean, that's something that we do. Obviously, nobody else does, and that context is so. Uh, I just, the way you, you use the right word, context is the right word. These all these guys, and there, there's certain park factors in leagues. There's that. Evaluating performance in the league context, that's a, a, a step that I think we take that it definitely seems like it helps me. And, JJ, I guess that's one of the things that Ben talked about, like a guy like Verdugo, where you can actually, sometimes with the video, you can see the adjustment. And you, you talked about it this year when you were uh, writing about A.J. Reed. No, one of the things that did stand out, I mean, when we're writing up, I, you wrote Blake Snell, I wrote A.J. Reed for our minor league player of the year issue. And I, I did make a point of I wanted to watch a lot of A.J. Reed video. Um, I if you find the right teams now again there are some MILB TV teams that if you got a camera behind home plate uh, and it's just one camera I mean what is it showing you mm-hmm. but when you're talking about if you've got that especially double AA, A triple A levels and some of the lower levels too if you got that center field or center field ish camera where you can see at bat after at bat I th- I tried to watch I think in that case like 50 AJ Reed at bats and the point of it what really stood out from that which Help me then ask questions. But the reality is, is I was asking questions a lot of times to pro scouts who they hadn't watched 50 A.J. Reed at-bats because 50 at-bats is... That's a lot. That's 10, 12. I think I watched like 12 games. Well, I was probably actually a little bit more than that because I was able to scan through because the games already happened and say, okay, you know, in this case, it's this. It, I don't need to see that at-bat. I want to see... I wanted to see at-bats especially what is it that allows him to draw so many walks to go with the average and the power... And really what stood out was is that he has an excellent ability to spoil with two strikes. He, can, he, he has, has a two-strike approach. And he has that hand-eye that, okay, maybe he can't do something with that pitch, but he can get to another pitch. And, you know, that's especially even in double-A, that gets you walks. Because if, you, right. if, if they throw a good 3-2 pitch and you foul it off, it's tough for a double-A pitcher to throw a second good 3-2 pitch. 
one of the things that's interesting with all this is is that when we talk to scouts, this is where the league top 20s are very useful, is, is that it's hard a lot of times when we're doing the top 100. There aren't scouts out there who have seen the 100. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, they have not extensively seen the 100. Now, we talk to pro scouting directors, people in the office, who they're doing a, a, a much more data-intensive version of what we're doing. Right. But... The reality of it is, is that you are having to collate and pull together from a lot of variety of different sources and say, hey, if we're comparing this guy to this guy, well, you're not going to find a scout out there who has seen this Florida State League first baseman and this Cal League first baseman. It's going to be hard to find, and you're not going to find multiple guys who say, yeah, I sat on Cody Bellinger all year, you know, a good bit, and I sat on Dominic Smith, and I sat on Jake Bowers. Right. Three first basemen who were all at the same level this year. That doesn't really happen very much. So then what you're having to do is is you're using multiple sources. Okay, we've got multiple guys we talked to who saw Dominic Smith. Right. We got multiple guys we talked you're, to who saw Cody Bellinger. Multiple. You're, you're the pro. We we have to have. I I, I the, <coughs> the analog I use is the the draft coverage. You know, on the draft when we cover draft stuff and we divide it up by region. But you can't have an area scout mentality. I'm not knocking the area scout's mentality because it's valuable. But you have to have more of like a cross-checkers mentality of comparing guys across different areas, different regions, different age levels, different spectra. It's the same thing with us on the pro side. You can't really have a pro scout mentality. You have to have, it's almost like a director of player personnel mentality because you have to be able to take the data that is performance-based, data that is from your pro scouts, data that is from your coordinators in your own organization, or like the minor league manager who says in his game report, yeah, I didn't like, you know, when we played them in a three-game series, I couldn't get a good time on him uh, to first base because he never ran hard. Not only that, I didn't see him go hard after. He 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 was a center fielder. He didn't back up the corner outfitters. Those kind of observations that field personnel make, thankfully – if you're doing it right, you're doing a league top 20, you're doing with your organ in it, you're doing that organization, maybe you're doing the draft report card for that team, you, you go through our draft report card notes, our draft notes, you can pull all that together. That, that's really what our jobs are. And that's, so it's difficult to do. It is, it is, it's, I think it's easy to do it if you have just the pro scout mentality. I'm not saying it's a bad mentality, but I think ours is trying to sit on a bigger mountain of information than just... Here's what the stats were, and here's what I saw in my week seeing the guy. It's reporting and analyzing. Yeah. But, and it comes back to the other thing with that is, is and this is the thing, one of the things we want to talk about today is, is, and there is the benefit of having done this for a while and learning lessons every year from this. Right. If you said, you know, the 2004, 2005 top hundreds, the way I looked at players was definitely different than what I look at now. Yeah. I, the I mean, game keeps changing. That's so. one of the questions I want to ask. I'll start with you, John. Is is what is it that you say? Like, I think we all have our certain our certain types, and because of that, we we know that, and we make adjustments for that. Like, okay, and like I know if I'm talking to you about a guy, you may like this guy a little bit more than me, and that's fine, and we'll kind of work that out. And you and I may have differently been in right, but what is it like? I mean, a type, or what are a kind of guy that you really you know, I, I, I always go back to, I learned something, I mean, the debates we used to have about Madison Bumgarner, mm-hmm. because your belief in his ability to pitch 
and dominate with the fastball. And at a time where he didn't really have great secondary like a, stuff. He had like a six and a half strikeout rate. And that wasn't even my belief. It was like the lesson I learned from him being able to dominate the Eastern League and that Brian Mattis was uh, dominating the Eastern League at the same time in 2008, I guess it was, 2009, 2009. And realized, well, one guy's doing it with four pitches, but those four pitches are kind of maxed out, according to the scouts I'd talked to. And one of them was not maxed out, and one of them was dominating without his best stuff and just carving was, dudes he was up. High a, 80s at that time. He was it. mid to high 80s, and it was almost like, and also think about it this way <laughs> the ghost of Jesse Foppert was in my head. I hadn't ranked Jesse Foppert that aggressively with the Giants. I'd been there the year before he became like our top pitching prospect in the minor leagues. But I mean, I was on board with Jesse Foppert. I was on him. I think I wrote him in the Valley League when he was a, high, a college sophomore. But I had a little skepticism with some Giants pitching prospects. I'd been reporting on the Giants. I'd seen Jerome Williams and Kurt Ainsworth. And I'd seen Matt Cain. But I'd also seen Merkin Valdez. So I loved, El Mago, El Mago. That's right. I respected Dick Tidrow significantly. But I had, I had my doubts. Uh, at that time, Tim Lincecum was... Tim Lincecum, like super stud, but how much of that was the Giants and how much of it was Tim Lincecum? So, but I just, I'll never forget, I won't name the scout, but I'll never forget the scout just talking about. I'd seen him as an amateur, seen him in the low minors, seen him in double A, same delivery basically when, he, when Bumgarner was on, and his angle and the deception, and also his just internal hatred of hitters and determination to get them out his way won the day and that his and it was just the the fastball it was just the so that was right when I was in my, also my Nick Blackburn you know phase but it really was the peak of so I still I still emailed him to Matt yesterday when we were analyzing where have we gone wrong on top pitching prospects to me it always comes back to fastball command with pitcher so I am partial to the pitcher who can command the fastball and I don't mean throw strikes with the fastball I really am looking for the fastball command so there's that and then the more the game has changed over these years, I'm partial to athletes. Um, I, I don't think that's revolutionary, but uh, I want to hear. Those are the questions I ask scouts over the phone. And I will say I've been here 19 years, and the one thing I think I can really do well is I can talk on the phone, but I also can listen on the phone. And before, I think I was really just good at talking on the phone. I'm still good at talking. But never gonna be a weakness. For I you, think John. I think I've gotten better at asking the right questions and listening on the phone to my sources and uh, learning when to shut up. And I do think that I'm very practiced from going back to interviewing Jody Garrett in the airport on the phone in as Stanford was coming back from a series for a College West feature, or talking to Chad Suter on the phone, my first phone call uh, for the player. Tulane, former Tulane catcher. I think I forget where he's an assistant coach now. Yeah, Bruce Suter's kid. But I've been, you know, so I, my experience was in college and at newspapers, like yours, JJ, was interviewing, going to games, interviewing players after games, going to practice, interviewing them after practice in person. I got to BA and I had to learn to do that stuff on the phone. And I think I've gotten good at it. I think I could do it after 19 years. That's the other thing I think is, I like to see the player. It helps me ask better questions. But I feel like I can actually get a player over the phone. And if I get the right source, who's got time on the phone, especially if they're an area scout driving to games, they got two hours in the car, or if they're at home in the off season, if 
if I get a couple hours of those guys, I can bleed those mother scratchers dry of info. Because people like to talk about baseball, and I feel like I'm good at talking about it and getting that information out of people. So that's so those are what I look for. I look for sources who like to talk, and I look for those. I'm looking for athletes among position players because I feel like the rest of it you have to have a certain level of baseball player. But I'm looking for those athletes, and I, I feel like Ben actually. You're at the opposite end. Ben, I think, Ben, Ben's you the prioritize hit the hit tool. I feel like I'm almost like a mid-90s, like I'm going to rank Ruben Rivera. I hope I'm, not, <laughs> I hope I'm not that extreme, Ben, but I feel like you have definitely prioritized the hit tool. To uh, when, I, when I look at your top 150 and where it's different from mine, uh, that kind of guy, I guess in my head, the Tommy LaStella class of player, and he's an extreme example of a guy who had a six-hit tool and fours everywhere else. Um, you might rank that player higher than I would rank him. Yeah, I think if, when I look at my list compared to the, the list that you guys have, yeah, well, I think one thing, the two things that stand out to me are, yeah, I think hitting is, is the hardest thing to uh, to evaluate in baseball. Uh, you know, pitchers are, are certainly risky. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, unknown that can go on with, with a pitcher that can uh, derail their careers. But uh, when you're just talking about projecting, uh, who, who's going to hit at the major league level? That, to me, is the hardest thing for for anybody to project in baseball. Uh, it's you know anybody can look at uh, a, a player's arm or his range in the outfield or his speed uh, or his raw power. I mean those those tools are pretty easy to grade out. There's really not going to be much disagreement among scouts. Maybe half a grade or, or a grade here and there just depending on, on how, how good of a look you get at a guy. But for the most part, there's really not going to be much disagreement from scout to scout when we're talking about just grading out the tools other than the future hit tool. Right. Because most guys in, in the minor leagues are not even, you know, they don't even have an average uh, grade on their hit tool right now. But some of them are going to jump up two, three, uh, you know, grades by the time they, they get to the big league. Sometimes – you know, even more if we're, if we're talking about a, a young, you know, 17, 18-year-old kid. So uh, I think hitting is, is the hardest thing to evaluate and why guys, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, I, obviously we were very high on, you know, somebody like Rugnet Odor, but, uh, you know, especially earlier in his career, yeah. you know, he wasn't very highly thought of a lot of college players who, you know, fall in, in the draft, whether it's, uh, you know, Devin Travis or, or Matt Carpenter or, or these other guys who, are you know don't have the, the standout loud tools or right. or athleticism that that a lot of uh, you know that really catches your eye that's really flashy that jumps out to you right away uh, you know those guys have gone later in the draft or just gone overlooked sometimes as prospects but uh, then you look up and, and they're in the big leagues and and they're you know they're, they're some of the best players in the big leagues. Those are those are two great examples. Both 13, 13, <laughs> 13th round picks by the way. But Devin Travis was one of yours. That was one of those where the prioritizing the hit tool. Now he has he has athleticism. He's not a superior athlete, but he has that baseline athleticism. Like I, it's almost like the inverse of what I'm talking about. But you have to have that baseball that that baseline hitting ability, and then the athleticism. If you have that, then you get a Trout, or then you get a Machado, or these superstars. I get. I feel like uh, Matt. That's where the evaluating that hit tool. That is where the data comes in the most, and especially in this era. Or it feels like it's harder to evaluate the hit tool because contact rates and strikeout rates are so high and contract rates are so low. Uh, again, that's where context 
comes in, right? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like the, the player type I'm most biased against is probably the guy with a wild strikeout-to-walk ratio because the, the gap in the major leagues is wider than it's ever been between strikeouts and walks. So, like, for me, I prioritize players like Max Kepler and Austin Meadows, for example, over Nick Williams, right. over Joey Gallo, I, you know, different position. But like, to me, those, those sorts of players might not have the same ceiling, but I think they have higher floors because of that. I, I would agree. And floor, those, and floor versus comp- ceiling is, a, is always a tough... Because you know, the answer is, is, you say, you know, we get that question. I, I was on a podcast last night, and they were asking, so how do you compare, you know, how do you... You know, when you're comparing floor and ceiling and all, and the answer is yes, because <laughs> right. it, it it all fits into there, and I, I do think as a overall staff, one thing that we do, it's a it's obviously a mixture, but we do definitely have a predilection towards guys who have proven it. If you've done it at Double A and above with tools, that's where you're going. Those are the guys who are going to rank, you know, in the top ten usually. And I, and I have missed that player. Like the note I was talking to John yesterday about Starling Marte was a player who had a bad strikeout to walk in the minors, Triple A, Double A, and I I wouldn't have touched him in my strat league. But right. now he's you know he's he's a borderline I don't call him a star, but he's an above average regular player. And then he was a guy who he's a borderline star for me. And he's, he's got and he, there. and he was I mean like I you know I remember the FSL I mean he was a guy toolsy with a now that that that, that is a tough guy to evaluate. He's always the guy who has a hit tool, mm-hmm. but doesn't have. I mean, Nick Williams fits that Doesn't have to supporting me. skills. Right? Nick Williams fits that because Nick Williams' pure hit tool, when you talk about hitting as ability to put the barrel on the ball and drive it well, Nick Williams is exceptional at that. Yeah. When you talk about laying off of a 2-2 pitch that you really should let go so that you can get a better pitch, Nick Williams is still not very good at that. And those are, I mean, those are always tough calls because he, he, those are the high variance players. He's especially tough because uh, to it, it, the influence of Clint Longenecker working here for eighteen months, Nick Williams has a plus plus body. <laughs> so when you watch Nick Williams and you're like, that is how a dude is supposed to look. That guy's just jacked and athletic, and but he. What, th- those are the kind of guys where I'm having a harder time laying off those guys than I used to. And I do feel like part of that, just the evolution of the game, I go back to the context again. We're 17, 18 years from expansion. In 2004, say you're doing this, you're six years out. There's still some pitchers in the league who wouldn't have been in the league before expansion. Pitching's caught up. It's caught up with a vengeance, and the hitters have to catch up. It's just a very different context now to rank players. So, But I, I will say, though, it goes, you know, I think, though, you look at that, and yeah, I mean, Lewis Brinson's a guy who fits very much. He took a step forward in 2015 as far as those secondary skills to go with the kind of the athleticism, the, you know, all that. Still some concerns there. He still, you know, he still strikes out a good bit and all that, but he, he took some steps forward. But then in the same group that we're talking about, we also have A.J. Reed, who right. I think we're all pretty, I mean, pretty convicted on it in some ways. There's some concern there, but... Let's AJ Reed that was is that the question to you because you talk about athleticism and, and body types. AJ Reed is like is the, the perfect. Flip side. He's the opposite. Perfect, of that. Uh, yeah. He is, but he, you know, for for me and uh, I, I guess I'd give both JJ and Ben credit on this one. You guys both kept pointing out just how standout his season was and how historic it was. And I've talked to scouts about him. We were researching for the minor league player of the year. 
I can say I think more highly of him now than I did in September. He hasn't taken many more bats, none that mattered, fall league. None that mattered, though, but when you really dig into the numbers and the length of his track record, not just what he did in 2015, as significant as that was, but dominating college baseball in 2014 and what he did as an amateur hitter before that, he has a long history of hitting for power. <laughs> and I think his and floor... at the same time. I, I think his floor is a Lucas Duda type of floor. I think that's a pretty good floor. You know, that's a five or six hole hitter on a championship team. And I think his ceiling is significantly better than Duda's ceiling. And that's really... And it's harder to find power in the game. If you take power, clearly has it. Combine it with controlling the strike zone. Maybe he doesn't look so good in the uniform. Maybe he looks more like me than he should. But I'm, I'm buying in more now. But I had an initial, an initial reluctance because of the lack of athleticism, the lack of versatility, that he doesn't run enough that you could put him in the outfield uh, where his arm could be an asset. But then you, you combine the, what he, the track record, what he just did this year, the first base position is wide open in Houston, and all the performance data tells you he's ready to step into that role. I think it's hard to not to rank him. I think it's hard to – I mean, Ben, didn't you put it like – basically, he's, in your mind, he's like outside of Seager, he was the best hitter in the minor leagues for you, right? Yeah, I mean, I like guys, you know, the guy, the things I like are guys who guys who can really hit and guys who are well-rounded players who can give you value on on both sides of the ball, especially at a, a premium position. Uh, but when it comes to first baseman, you know, I don't really need a guy who can run there. I don't really need <laughs> right. somebody who is a great athlete there. You know, Jose Abreu is, is not a, a good athlete and he's not a, a good defender over at first base, but he's, he's one of the best first basemen in baseball. I mean, first base is the, is the one position where, yeah, I mean, you, you'd like to have somebody who can give you value in the field, too, and, and play above-average defense for that position in, in a perfect world. But at the end of the day, first base is a position where you have to mash. And right. A.J. Reed, can, uh, he has a long track record of, of hitting. It's, it's not an excessive swing and miss, I mean, especially compared to – you know, somebody like Joey Gallo, for example, who, you know, it's, you know, we have them right next to each other on the top 100, and, and Joey Gallo has more power, uh, but with, with more swing and miss and, and more athleticism and, and more positional advantage with, with Joey Gallo for, you know, for at least as long as he can stay at, at third base for, for a little bit. But, but A.J. Reed has, has huge power, uh, and, and he doesn't swing and miss excessively, and, and he has a great approach, too. So I think he's going to be a guy who, has pretty much done what he's done throughout the minor leagues is what you're going to see at the major league level, a guy who can hit, a guy who can get on base at a high clip, and, and a guy who can hit for power, and a guy who's also done it now at the double-A level. I mean, there's more you feel more confident seeing him do it in the upper minors than you, know, you, than you would have, like we are talking about earlier, if a guy hasn't done it, uh, or if a guy's only done it in, in the Midwest League or the South Atlantic League. Yeah, I think if AJ Reed had had spent the entire year at Lancaster, correct, he would have ranked <laughs> in the fifties for me. <laughs> I, I was gonna say it. It really was him going to Corpus and doing the same thing was vital to him ranking where he does. I would agree. There's a, I mean, like same thing with Lewis Brinson, completely different kind of player, but completely, but had like the second best performance season from a rate stats perspective. Mm-hmm. Next to second, AJ Reed, second best slugging percentage in the minors behind. Much better athlete and played a much more premium position. Now he didn't do it as long. There were some injury issues, but he did more, most of it at High Desert, some at Frisco, a smidge at Round Rock. 
Um, that's another guy who, again, gets there completely differently. But the fact that he did some of it away from Round Rock, uh, from a high desert, allowed me to buy in some more on him, certainly. Um, there were a million different directions I, I was going to go here, and I've, I've, I've uh, confused my own head as to where to go <laughs> next. Why don't we go, why don't we go on pit? We, we start a little bit on pitchers. I talked about kind of what I look for. Uh, Matt, what, what, do you, you know, what are you looking for in a pitcher? And part, it kind of stems from our discussion this week where we talked about some of our misses. Where I think we've gotten better at identifying pitching prospects. We have fewer Brian Taylors and Todd Van Poppels in our see, but, top hunter. I think that's the industry's gotten better. But, but Brian Taylor, see, I'll, I'll flip those two. Because Brian Taylor... His walk rate was pretty huge. Right. And I but, like him. He could have been But we, have no, we literally have right. no clue. I mean, like, there are the guys. We're going to continue to rank pitchers who get hurt and are never what they were. And we just have to shrug our shoulders because that happens. I agree. But Todd I, Van Poppel had every opportunity and just right. wasn't as good. That's true. He was also rushed by the contract. It didn't help. You know. <laughs> oh, we still have that Dylan Bundy. Right, exactly. <laughs> and absolutely. And it, it worked as well in 2012 as it did in, in 2011 as it did back then. It but, was the last one, though, because now you can't sign a major league contract. But, but, but just Brian, uh, the, the year Brian Taylor was a big deal, would we rank a, a, a guy who was... Uh, you know, 340 ADRA as a 21 year old in Double A, um, with 150 strikeouts and 163 innings, but with rates of 5.6 walks and 8.3 strikeouts, hmm. would that be the number one prospect in no. baseball or the number two prospect probably, in baseball? Probably anymore? 15 to 25. Yeah, exactly. If you trust in the pedigree. Yeah. Right. I mean, we we would not jack him up as much as we did back then. Yeah, in pitching, with pitching, in some ways, there's nothing new under the sun, but I, th- I think there is some research now that indicates that. Uh, a pitcher's ability to throw first pitch strikes can improve as he ages, and therefore his walk rate can improve as he ages. So for that reason, um, that's why I'm bullish on Carlos Rodon, for example, in the major leagues. Literally the worst first pitch strike rate among starters last year. But And, and, that, and that is and the, always the question with him was, would he have the athleticism? Because it's not... It's not the uh, Clint Longenecker body. It's not the body that True. makes you... That's a fair counterpoint. He's not Adam Ravenel. <laughs> seductive. He's not. A, he doesn't have a seductive body. But that, that's, that'll never get topped for me. But I mean, so, but, but Carlos does have stuff, and he has right. track record of. He has that hatred of the hitter that I talked about earlier with Bumgarner too. And, and he's left-handed. And you'd like to see a, a pitching prospect have good control, be able to hold base runners. But I think these things that are that can improve um, upon. So therefore, in some ways, it just always comes down to strikeouts and not allowing an excessive number of hits because that indicates. That you can throw the ball in the zone, the batter can't hit it or yeah. hit it hard. And that is the interesting question. Like you look at a guy, Tyler Glass, though, to me is a, is a fascinating guy because when it comes to just control and command, Tyler Glass is not there. Or He's, Alex Reyes. Or they're not there. Right. But and especially Glass knows career opponents' batting average, I believe, is one eighty one. I'm just off the top of my head, but it's roughly two hundred. Yeah, it's, it's, under, it's under two hundred. Sure. I know it's under two hundred. It's well crazy. Under. It's extreme. And so he's done this. Every level he's ever gone to, whether it's low A or high A or double A or triple A, guys don't hit. Yeah. And, okay, if you have that ability, because that's one of the things that I look for. Really, kind of one of the questions is, is I am I know, like, if you said my bias is, my bias is, is velocity is part of it. Right. I mean, the reality yeah. of it is, is that, especially nowadays, I'm just not going to get that enamored very often. It's got to be a pretty special guy for me to get excited about a guy who has a 99 two-mile-an-hour fastball. 
You gotta, I mean, you gotta future proof your picks, you know? Because hmm. there's gonna be attrition in there's velocity gonna, and strikeout rate. Velocity and strikeout rate are both gonna go down as they age and as they go up the levels. And now, again, that doesn't mean that I, a guy who I was, because everyone I talked to back when Mike Leak was coming out of, of college, hmm. everyone you talked about, Mike Leak said, the thing you have to realize with this is, is yes, it's no better than average fastball. And because of that, you are talking about probably a number four starter. At the same time, though, do realize this guy's athleticism is different. Is different athleticism. Different athleticism, different makeup. This guy only paid ninety million dollars one day. <laughs> but you know, but ranking Tyler Eshelman when I was doing the Astros list this year, Thomas. Thomas Eshelman, sorry, Thomas Eshelman, ranked you know this year who's now been traded to the Phillies. We're talking about the extremes now for right. sure. He is Thomas, like the anti-Glasnow. Who, by the way, Glasnow's career opponent batting average one seventy one. I mean, I, that is extreme. I thought it was one seventy one in my head. I was like, it can't be right. I'm no, you were right. So I went 181, which was wrong. But but Eshelman is a guy, when you talk about ability to control and command, he's, I mean, it's the Kevin Slowey type. I mean, it is at the top of the scale. Yeah, I think Eshelman's yeah. nudging Slowey aside. If he gets the big leagues, huh. he will become the new example. Of but extreme, It's a good comp. It's a physical comp, too. Works as well. And that, that's actually one of the things I was going to ask. I'm interrupting a little bit. I feel like I use comps more than anybody else, any of the rest of you guys. I love comps. But they organize. The fine, the they organize my. Comps. Well, I I go all over the place with comps. I, I I don't necessarily always write them. I use them to organize my own thoughts and organize my notes because sometimes, well, I'm Captain Tangent and I could get off on other paths with players, but a comp helps bring me back to what is this guy gonna be. It's like Ben when you were talking earlier about AJ Reed and I threw Lucas Duda out. As a floor, that just helps me realize, okay, that helps me rank a guy, basically. If I think his floor is Lucas Duda, that's one thing. If I think his ceiling is Lucas Duda, he ain't going to be number 11 on my list of a top 100. And you mentioned Joey Gallo, such a rare player. We've tried what are the Joey Gallo comps. I mean, like, it's fun to see Joey Gallo at Instructs in 2014 taking ground balls at shortstop. We have video and pictures of that. You ain't never going to see A.J. Reid do that. But that's not helpful for Joey Gallo. Um, so is Joey Gallo going to be Russ Brannion? If that's, I think that's his floor. I think then that's a worse floor than Lucas Duda. Mm-hmm. Lucas Duda was a regular on the championship caliber team. And he was a reason they were a championship team. That guy's dropped 57 bombs the last two years. Yeah. Russell Brannion never did that. I'm in my retro league. <laughs> I've seen the Russell Brannion career. It wasn't as good as a Lucas Duda career. But the ceiling for Joey Gallo is like a more athletic Adam Dunn. I mean, that's really what it is. It's, it's a guy going to walk three true outcomes, but also bring you defensive value. Maybe he turns into Adam Dunn, period, which wouldn't be as valuable. It's certainly a better career than Russ Brannion. Right. And probably a better career than it's Lucas Duda. a better career than Lucas Duda. And too. it's probably a better career than... I think it's a higher ceiling than what A.J. Reid has, personally. Actually, I think they kind of have almost the same ceiling. See, and I, but but, but Gallo has Reed, a little more defensive value. With A.J. Reed, what I do is is I kind of look at it and say, I mean, to me, one that jumps out is, and we've talked about this, and this is, to me, one of the things that's very useful when we're doing this, is this continuing conversation right. we have. I've thrown out before, it's like, what about if A.J. Reed is a, is a kind of a Ryan Howard type? Right, that's a good comp you've thrown out. Which also, for whatever reason, uh, you know, it, it, doesn't, it used to be comps were physical comps. To help in the pre-video era, Connor Glassy wrote about this for hmm. us a few years ago. 
comps were same race comps because you wanted to paint the picture in the scout's head who didn't have video and hadn't seen the player. So that's why you comp Dominic Brown to Daryl Strawberry physically, because guess what? Physically, it helped your scout make that comparison. But performance-wise, there's no need to keep it black on black, white on white. So a cross-racial comp helps. It's not just political correctness. It's just not necessary anymore because but, we have video of the players. We know, so you don't have to paint that picture. Right. I, it's really more of a performance comp. I don't, yeah, I, when I use comps, when, I, when we're talking and all, I use them much more on what, is, what type of player is that guy going to end up right. being? What type of player? And a lot of times, I mean, I, I, I watch how much I use it when I'm talking to scouts because some scouts still are very much using yes. the physical comp. Right. And if you do that and I throw out a guy who's four inches shorter, or in some cases, I'm talking about a guy who they're both left-handed hitters, right. but one's a left-handed hitter, throws right, one's a left-handed hitter, throws left, and they're like, well, those guys aren't anything like each other. It's right. like, no, 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 what I'm talking about those production, but... I, I like, I, they work best when they marry both, when mm -hmm. the physical and yeah. the performance comp match. But just for example, there's a guy in the book, Nick Longy, uh, Red Sox. I think he's number 13 or 14 in the Red Sox in the prospect handbook. Mm -hmm. Well, Nick Longy bats right, but throws left. So, in He's my head, in my head, yeah. I'm always thinking, okay, so his comps are going to be Mark Carrion, <laughs> Cody Ross, or Ryan Ludwig. And I'm trying to disabuse myself <laughs> of that, but guess what? You read the report, it sounds a lot like what Mark Carrion was on the 86 <laughs> Mets. It does. And his best case scenario sounds a little bit like a Ryan Ludwig. It, they actually fit. He's more of an early 90s Met. Oh, was it yeah. that late? Yeah. Mark Carrion? Yeah, I guess he, he was on the He was never on a good Mets team. Yeah. But I mean, like, it was so, all the worst team money could buy. So I mean, like, I will say this: he's no Cody Ross. He doesn't run like Cody Ross. He ain't going to be a, a premium center fielder. Right. But Brian Ludwig did play some center field in his career. Mm -hmm. Not well, but he played it strat card rated on yeah. the center field. Nice career. So yeah, exactly. So yeah, so if Nick Longy winds up being Ryan Ludwig, I think he'll actually be in between. Like a, I think he has a, more of a Mark Carrion career. That comp fits because it batted right, throws left. There aren't that many of those guys. Obviously, we're not comparing any of these guys to Ricky just because he batted right and throws left. Ricky's Ricky. But the point, yeah, is, the point is I love it when the comp matches physically and the performance is approximation. But I love the A.J. Reed-Ryan Howard comp. Mm -hmm. As a ceiling, I love that comp. And the thing about it is... I think comps have their, I think comps have their advantages and their drawbacks, too. Yeah. Um, you know, there's... One thing is that... Remember that it's a comp, not a clone. I mean, <laughs> Great point. sometimes you throw out a, a comp, and, and the comp is a comparable player. It's not saying this guy is going to be the exact same guy as this player, because no two players are going to be exactly alike. That's not what a comp is saying. And, and you brought up a good point, too. Sometimes, uh, you know, comps are used physically, and sometimes they're used for a player's skill set, and it's obviously important to. To make sure we're specifying yep. which one it is, because I'll throw out sometimes, uh, especially if we're, if we're talking about an amateur player, uh, especially like an, at the international level where, you know, very few people have, have seen them, especially our readers. All right, I want to say this is what, you know, physically this is what this player uh, looks like or, or could potentially look like down the road, uh, just to give an idea physically of what this player looks like, but then also... If I'm going to throw out a, a cop on a player, it's going to be more, uh, probably more skill set oriented and, and specify that. Uh, I think one of the one of the biases involved in, in comps is it tends to be. Uh, the, I think there's a few biases in them. Uh, just one based on the the scout. I mean, it's it's going to be 
they tend to be geographically biased, which makes a lot of sense if you're an area scout uh, in a certain part of the country or, or in a certain part of the world, like the Dominican Republic, for example. You're going to compare the players, you know, you're going to compare the player you're seeing now to a player you saw when they were an amateur player, when they were <clears throat> when they were coming up when they were 16 years old in, in your area. Or if you're uh, an area scout in, in the States, in, in Florida, you're, you're going to compare them to other guys who... Uh, you saw as an amateur in, in Florida, too. Uh, and then I think they also tend to be biased toward successful players because that's just who we tend to remember. I mean, it's it's easy to remember the guys who have worked out and gone on to successful major league careers. Uh, uh, you know, the longer you've been doing it, the, probably the more memories yeah. you have of guys who you've seen who, who haven't worked out. But it's also easy to... Uh, to forget those guys who maybe had a, a similar skill set who who didn't work out, and then also it's it's hard to throw out a comp to a uh, you know to a to a minor league player who maybe if it was a, a top prospect but never worked out just because how useful is that to a reader to compare a guy to you know Dennis Tankersley or somebody like right. that? It's going to have no Mark, yeah, it's going to have no meaning to I still use uh, to a reader. Right, but I, I, what, what, where to me, where I think comps can can be extra useful is, is to go through them and, and see where players are different, because to me, like AJ Reed and, and Ryan Howard are, are different kind of guys. I mean, I, I certainly think there's similarities as, as left-hand, big, physical, unathletic left-handed hitters. <laughs> but to me, I, I think with, with, you know with huge power. But I, I think Reed is a is a more polished hitter. Uh, with a much more polished approach and, and better plate discipline uh, than Ryan Howard. I, and I like going through that with, with scouts, too, when I'm on the phone uh, talking to them at a game about players and talking about comparable players. But, okay, these guys are similar, but, but here's, you know, they're, they're actually different for, for X, Y, and Z reason. Because, again, no, no, so, no two players are, are the same guy. We're, we're not saying a cop is a clone. But I, I find it extremely useful to go through comparable or, or similar players uh, and, and actually talk to scouts and, and see, all right, well, well, here's why they're they're different. Yeah, I, that's a good. I, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, they, they have their use, their usefulness. I almost feel like I lean on them almost too much when I'm organizing things, but I don't write them very often. Um, I feel like I only write them when <coughs> if I, I I like to come up with them on my own and run them by scouts. I only use them. If somebody says, oh, yeah, no, I see that, or I really like that comp, right. that's the only time that I, I use them. I actually feel like I also use them, um, again, uh, to organize myself on the draft side as well. It really, when you're ranking amateur players, it's really hard for me to organize 500 guys in the BA 500 without, at least in my own head, a comp just to help me because 500 guys is... But you don't dig deep on the high school batting geez. statistics? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it's harder. Did, you do, but you what you do is is like it's pretty much it's a disqualifying factor. Yeah, I mean, like there have been That's guys right. where it's like good call, great call. The best way to put it is is if you can't hit three hundred, I don't care what how tough it is. <coughs> there was a guy in California last year. I know he was hurt, but who was the guy? It was the guy with the BYU, <coughs> Kyle Dean. We just talked about him yesterday as a potential preseason. That's uh, probably freshman team. an important tip when you're analyzing any league that isn't like a organized minor or major league. It's the guys who don't perform in those contexts. <coughs> that's probably more telling than the guys who do. Yeah, it's hard. And the higher you, the closer you get to the big leagues, the harder it is to make up for guys who don't perform. <laughs> you know, 
Um, we probably should wrap up soon, but other, I guess the two things that clubs talk about a lot that we haven't talked about in this podcast at all are makeup and injury. Makeup seems like it's very difficult for us to get reads on. We have tiny shreds of makeup information, it feels like. I do feel like um, one advantage that we have is we do have some of this amateur information. Uh, not always, but sometimes we have it. I will, and will plead 100% guilty to not always disseminating this information as much as I should to the BA staff. I feel like we've gotten so much better, thanks to JJ, at sharing notes, sharing information um, across the entire staff. Um, it used to be much more siloed. We're better about sharing it. We're still, I'm still not great at it. I think there was. I feel like there was something in the top hundred meeting I just said the other day, Ben, where you were like, "Oh, I didn't know that." <laughs> you know, like maybe it was about Nick Gordon, or we were talking about, or something. But but I, I always ask you about amateur players when I'm doing. You my, do. My you top ask. 30s. So like, I, I try to. Oh, and for me, like getting involved in the draft, I want to get more and more involved in the draft because it's the matrix. <laughs> you, you don't say. <laughs> the small college coverage for JJ this year was voluminous. <laughs> <clears throat> Uh, he had some if I don't like to, to do on. anything and go, oh, you know, I'll just you know put a couple you know paragraphs down here. Yeah, no, it was big time. But um, but yeah, so that so that's where we get some window into the makeup. Just like a player like who I'm probably lower on than other people, but I will say one of the reasons I'm still someone in it, even though he's a fringy athlete, is Jesse Winker. And one of the reasons I do believe in Jesse Winker is he was a very divisive player at a high school, Olympia High, in Orlando. Uh, two home runs, I believe it was, his senior year. For a guy who everyone said, corner, left field, bat. And the power still hasn't come through yet. Like when you talk about guys being the next Sean Burroughs, that's Jesse Winker for me. I am not 100% convicted you, in the you, power you've, bat. You've thrown Sean Burroughs, and the other guy you've thrown, which I think is a good one, is, um, I'm going to blank now, the Padres. Uh, Seth Smith. No, uh, no. Cedric Hunter? No. no the pod- <laughs> uh, Jeff Decker. Jeff Decker, that's right. He reminds me of Jeff Decker. His body isn't that bad. No. It's not that different. <laughs> no, it, it's not. I mean, it's better short than Short and squat? He's not squ- as squat as Jeff Decker. He's not short. He's not as short either. Their amateur track record is very similar. They both were thumb and lefty well, pitchers, were very effective, plus competitors, um, but corner guys. But but the thing that does make me believe someone Jesse Winker is I just will, I'll never forget the phone call with uh, his travel ball coach in high school. I can't remember his name now. It was a great was travel ball team. Pound, it was the Orlando Scorpions. So, But just pound, I think it's Jerry Kennedy. Pound of the table for Jesse Winker as if I were the one who was going to pull the card and draft him. <laughs> I mean, this guy's conviction on Jesse Winker was so high. I, that was four or five years ago, but I'm not going to forget it. So every time I start moving Jesse Winker down my personal top 150, the last thing in my head is, you know what, though? The guy who was with him every day for two summers believed him, and it, and it pushes me back up a little bit. So that makeup – so I would say our makeup information – such as we can get it, seems like it drives all of us. But it is difficult to have, right? I mean, is it pretty consistent for all you guys? It's hard. It's really kind of catch as catch can for makeup info. I think as we're talking to the teams, is valuable. I think right. you can kind of read between the lines and their internal evaluations about off-field stuff. They're definitely feeding us in some ways, but I think right. there's a perception online with some people that we get that these are team-oriented, team-driven lists. I just think that's a fact. And, and the other part of this is this is the part of what we're doing throughout the entire year. It's like that's what I try to explain to people. Is it's this, a continuum. It is. There is never a point where you say, I mean, we have 
pretty much finalized our top 100. You're listening to this after we were recording this before our top 100 is coming out. I, that's shocking for you to guys to hear that. But we're already working on the 2017 top 100. Right. Because everything that we're doing all feeds into this. And one of the things that you're doing during the season is, is, and you have to learn how to say, okay, you take this info in and that's useful, that's valuable, that I can throw out. But it's also going to games and seeing how guys interact with other guys, seeing how yes. much guys work, hmm. put work in, things like that. It's also talking to scouts about that. It's having that sixth sense when you talk to a manager who, he may not bury one of his guys, right. but you can tell from talking to him that he's also not going out of his way to tell you, yeah, this guy, man, I, I, I show up at the ballpark and he's here before me. Right. It's the, I show up at the ballpark and, yeah, he's, he, he puts his work in. I like to ask manager, minor league managers to rate the, to you know, tier their own players for that reason. That will tell you a lot about how they feel about the makeup and, and, work, and work ethic. And the other thing, again, that goes back to, I, there is a value of, of having done this. There's a value of knowing scouts, but also managers. I mean, I love talking to a manager I've talked to for, you know, in different levels even, but over the last 10, 15 years, and know, you know what? I remember this guy was so on this guy in 07, and I, you know, I really know this is a guy I can trust. Right. You also, there are other guys you talk to and you get done with it and you're going, that was useful, that was helpful, I appreciate his time. That's not going to help me that much. You know, there are guys who love everyone. Yeah. Oh, he lo- you know, this guy's great, this guy's right. great, this guy's great. Okay. Don't need to talk to that guy as much. Or guys who are impervious to your, uh, to your multiple queries. Of, and then it's not gonna, they're not going to lift that veil of how much they really like the player. They'll ask, answer some basic questions. But those, those are usually the phone calls where you're hoping that you're just going to go for an hour and it winds up going 15, 20 minutes and you're like, peace out. I've had enough, and my time is precious as much and as yours. And yours is too, yeah. That's so right. So we're not going to do, you know. Yeah, I'm not going to waste your time anymore because you're not going to give me because kind of the insight I want. the reality is, is there are people who love doing this, and there are people who either won't yeah. do it, or people who like, I'll do it, but I'm just... It's reluctant. Right. Yeah. There, uh, what was the word I had uh, that the coach told me last year about guys? Uh, reluct- no, uh, something compliance. I think it was reluctant compliance. It was, was uh, uh, no, well, it was, yeah. Keep going, and I'll remember. We'll figure that. it out. But Ben, you, you, I think you have the the toughest time reading makeup with Latin American players because there's just so much. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? No, uh, obfuscation, lies. I mean, just misdirections. Am, am I overdoing it? But it feels like reading makeup on Latin American players because, uh, just because the system is corrupted is very difficult. Yeah, well, I think just being able to do your background homework on on a player's background in terms of knowing, you know, age and identity, whether that's accurate or not, is, is obviously important in, uh, in the Dominican Republic and, and some other uh, Latin American countries where look, Major League Baseball is going to approve just about everybody. And that's not – the reality is that Major League Baseball is approving players who are still, uh, you know, committing age fraud. There are, you know, there are players who are going to be on our uh, – who are high up on our, our prospect list, whether it's for a July 2nd ranking or, or on our top 100 list, who, you know, a lot of teams don't believe they are the age they say they are. But ultimately, you have to rank them based on – 
what you think their future is, is going to be. Your age is, is a part of it, but uh, and it plays a factor, especially when we're talking about very young prospects. But uh, there are, are very good major league players and, and stars and guys who've won MVPs who, who've done it using a, a false age. So the, the goal is not to sign a 16-year-old kid. The goal is to sign a future major league player. So even if he's saying he's 16 and he's, he's really 19, uh, if you still think he's going to be uh, a, a big leaguer and especially a good one, you're going to want to sign him. Okay. Uh, so that's that's part of it. Uh, steroids are, are obviously a, a big part of the uh, you know the Latin American amateur baseball culture too, where, where those players are are using drugs and and not getting caught because they're not you know being tested at all, so, or they're being tested and, and not being subject to any uh, you know any official sanction. There, there's players who failed drug tests. Uh, through through team administered drug tests and and they haven't had to serve any official major league suspensions because of it. So it's uh, you know that that part of it is certainly tricky. I, I know there's a lot of teams that you know place a high emphasis on on a player's makeup when you're talking about signing a whether it's a young Latin American amateur player because you know going from you know uh, you know going from Vanderbilt into the Midwest League is, is not really that big of a, a jump when you're talking about drafting a, a college junior, uh, how he's going to adapt to pro ball. I mean, yeah, there's some adjustments. Or you're taking a, a kid from a cold-weather state and uh, – or, or from, excuse me, from a warm-weather state and, and putting him into maybe the Midwest League in April out of high school. All right, yeah, there's going to be some adjustment there. But it's completely different when you're talking about – Taking a kid from the Dominican Republic who uh, maybe grew up under very impoverished conditions in in San Cristobal or or, or some other city in, in the Dominican Republic with, without very much means, and you're going to give him a million dollars and and send him to the United States uh, into a foreign country. There's a lot of different things that that can go wrong and, and that have gone wrong there. And, and then when we're talking about Cuban players now. Yeah, you, you know, you're signing guys who are older and, and 26, 27 years old sometimes, but, I mean, the, the difference between going from Cuba to the United States, uh, after, especially after you've lived there your whole life, is, is very different than growing up in, in the Dominican Republic or Venezuela and going to the United States. So uh, I think there are, there's certainly a lot of teams that try to do as much homework as they can uh, and, and use that as, um, you know, sometimes a disqualifying factor on whether they're going to sign a player and I think that matters uh, for for those players but ultimately I think talent trumps makeup by far I think I look at makeup very differently than than a lot of people I think it's something that uh, you know I think it's something that can change for a player it's a lot easier to, to change somebody's work ethic than it is to change their fastball or their curveball or yeah. their ability uh, to hit or their speed. I mean, you know, my work ethic when I was, you know, 17, 18 years old is, is much different than it was when I was 21 or, or 25 years old. They, so I think that's mature, something that you can mature easier. Yeah, and you can have a then you can develop a loose wrist to really spin a breaking ball. <laughs> well, and, and absolutely. Other... And there are and, and there are guys who, who still have you know probably would be considered bad makeup in, in the major leagues. I mean, do the Dodgers regret signing Yasiel Puig? I, I don't think so. I mean. 
I'm sure he's caused a lot of headaches, but the talent is outstanding. I mean, he's he's probably paid for his contract already at this point. And then, you know, frankly, I, I think a lot of times makeup, the way it's it's used, uh, it is as it's it's used as an excuse sometimes where a player doesn't work out uh, as well as a, a scout thought or as well as a coach was hoping for. Or maybe as you know, as well as one of us were hoping for, were based on where we ranked them. Well, you know, I I wasn't wrong about evaluating this guy's baseball ability. He just turned out to be a a bad makeup guy, and then whispers start to spread about the player, yeah. uh, or it just gets used as an excuse for why a player doesn't work out, rather than saying, you know what, I you know I just misread his his baseball ability. Well, I think the other thing with that is is that sometimes, and you get. Guys, you know, say, oh, I don't like this guy's makeup. You know, you're here for scouts sometimes. But I always think of the question comes back to, okay, is this something where he's not a guy you'd want to spend a lot of time with? Or is it where this guy actually, it affects his ability as a baseball player and affects his ability as a teammate? Because yeah. I always go back to, you know, there was always the rumblings, that, you know, you saw not at our side, but other places that Bryce Harper had terrible makeup, you know. <laughs> right. And it comes back to, Oh, no, he was crushed for it. But Bryce Harper's, quote, bad makeup always were things that I understand completely that there are people who say, oh, he doesn't play the game I like the way I like the game to be played. Or, oh, he, if I'm, you know, he's really pissed off that other team, things like that. Hey, like, I don't think Manny Machado's makeup is exemplary. Like, the, I mean, he does some things publicly that you shake your head at. What was it a couple of years ago where, like, he had the... Uh, he did something in the game to try to get back at a pitcher like he threw oh, the yeah, bat or something bad. like that. I mean, I just remember, there, there are these incidents throughout Manny Machado's career, but are the Orioles throwing back Manny Machado? Are they trying to trade Manny Machado? They're basically building their franchise around Manny Machado because he's a great things. player and he can grow out of that. He can. He's 22. He's 23 years old. These guys can become uh, less knucklehead, if you want to use that word. I mean, like, but the, 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 so I, the I, agree, I agree with you, Ben. don't cost you... Like Bryce Harper, the things he does are not things that hurt his team's ability to win games. Bryce Harper helps his team win games. And I'll go back to what Jack Hyatt told me with the with the Giants. Jack uh, played the big leagues, was the farm director for the Giants for a long time. I guess I have to work a little blue here to accurately quote Jack Hyatt. But he would say, we have no problem. This was like in 2002 he was telling me this. So put we it in have, context. We, we, have the, we have the non-explicit text. Yeah, so but put it, put, put it in context. He said, it, it doesn't hurt you to have a few bleep holes in the clubhouse from time to time. And the Giants had some bleep holes in the clubhouse. But they Jeff went to Ken a World Series Bonds with Jeff Kent and Barry Bonds. Exactly. Now, those are extreme examples. But Jeff Kent's another extreme example of a guy who hit, I believe, 220 and 190 his last two years at Cal. Um, so the statistical, he was off the statistical grid. He was off the makeup grid in a lot of ways, too. But for every Jeff Kent, a guy who was reported to not love the game, and not always get after it. Uh, I, I think back to a Travis Lee, who got $10 million as an amateur in 1996, but had some success in the big leagues. Probably should have been Brandon Belt. Should have, a very similar player in terms of their skill set, their tools. Uh, but Travis Lee didn't really love the game and didn't work at it and never got a whole lot better. Last thing I want to talk about so we can wrap up, uh, makeup was one injuries is like this other frontier and I thought it was telling to discuss that. I think we're all, and Ben, I think that you're, uh, and with good reason, more conservative ranking pitchers than the rest of us are. 
But we didn't rank Dylan Bundy in our top 100 this year. We didn't rank Jamison Tyone in our top 100. I'm looking back. I, I was searching my Google Drive for top 150s. So our process, we all submit 150s. In my case, I left somebody out, so I did a 151. So one player got zero points on the spreadsheet because I was the only one who voted for him. And he was number 151. You win a free copy of the book. That's right, exactly. He was number 151 on the on the book for and my personal 150. Um, and then we combine them all in the spreadsheet, and then we debate. But I found my R150 from 2011, mm. and Jamison Tyon, number two guy in the draft that year, um, was number 11 in our initial spreadsheet that year. I mean, we, I don't remember where he finished on the end, but he was ahead of such uh, players as. Shelby Miller, Manny Machado, who went third in that draft. Chris Sale. Um, but injuries, it feels like we are all a lot more afraid of pitcher injuries than we are hitter injuries. Is that fair? Thumbnail sketch? Was there any pitcher injury? <coughs> like Tommy John, do we all treat that? I mean, it feels like if you've had Tommy John, the further away you get from it, the more forgiving we are of that player. But I know we had that issue with like Steven Matz. We had some disagreement on Steven Matz this year. Is there an injury that you guys uh, – was there a player this year who really scared you away uh, because of the injuries besides the guys that we mentioned, Bundy and Tyone? Or was it, or we all, have we all come to a consensus pretty much that, like, pitcher injuries frighten, scare the hell out of all of us? I would say that Hunter Harvey, the thing with Hunter Harvey, going back to before he was injured, Hunter Harvey is a slight person. Yes. He's not big. And Hunter yeah, Harvey – and Hunter Harvey – has had long, I mean, but partly because of that, I do think it's it. There are more questions on can that guy sustain his stuff for a full season, much more than I do for a guy. Sean Newcomb, you know, a tornado I think could blow by the mound with Sean Newcomb on the mound, <laughs> and Newcomb might get bumped a little bit. I mean, he's massive. It does make a difference. He's a big and, man. You know, that those are the kind of things that I do think make. I, the other thing I, I think is is the further away you are from the injury, the less I worry about it. Is I guess you know, like you just said, I'm less. I don't worry that much on Stephen Matz because really Matz's problem was in uh, it was a lengthy, lengthy injury, mm-hmm. but it's one that he's now. I mean, if you look at Stephen Matz innings pitched over the last two, three years, him and Blake Snell's innings pitched match up pretty well. So it's not something where he's been unable to take his turn very often. Yeah, Matz is about two years older. Um, Kyle, Kyle Zimmer's other like yeah. off, he's the probably the most injured pitcher who we ranked in the top 100 this year. Yeah, I was scanning my top 50 for guys with injuries. Uh, Sean Manaya stands out, but it's not arm related. Correct? It was a hip, yeah, hip labrum, hip and, that, and that's one year, that he missed time this year, correct? Right, but this year was pretty minor stuff. He didn't miss dramatic, you know, a significant amount of time pitching the AFL. Um, okay, but like I mean, Zimmer's a great. I'm probably still the high man on Zimmer because maybe I'm focusing too much on the stuff he, is pretty good <laughs> when he's on the mound, yeah. and, and he it does seem like he's, he's a, been so a variety of absolutely. He did have a shoulder thing that took him out for a long time, but it's been a lot of other things. It's like if you have a guy who keeps having the same injury, that's different to me than a guy who has a variety. I mean, you always go back to to me Eric Davis. I mean, going way back, but. Eric Davis just never could play more than 130 games in a year. He was never the same player after the 1990 World Series. And also, he had cancer. So he's, he's a different case. But, but yes, but he was a historically undurable player, if that's a word. And there are guys who do just seem like you can call it bad luck or what, but he also can say maybe there is a certain component of it that some guys can play through things and some guys can't. 
Guys who get hurt tend to get hurt again. I mean, I, I do think that's – if you keep getting hurt, that's my hesitancy with Kyle Zimmer. He hasn't had one healthy season. Like, at least Steve Matz has shown you he can be healthy and stay healthy. Kyle Zimmer can't stay healthy. And once you keep getting hurt, you just keep getting hurt, it feels like. So, because of that cascade. There were a couple position players, both of them left-handed hitting outfielders, by the way. Yes. Same phylum of player. <laughs> Max Kepler and, uh, yes. and David Dahl. The other two guys, David Dahl keeps getting hurt. Now, I don't have in front of me what you did with those guys, but did their injury history give you any pause, or does it give you less pause when it's a position player? Uh, well, well, Dahl's is, was unusual yeah. because his was a spleen injury. And, I, you know, what do we know about <laughs> how, to, uh, how to account for how that? How to deal with splenectomies? Yeah. Yeah, it's... That's that's really hard to gauge, and, and judging his performance after he comes back from that, I, I had a real hard time knowing what to do with him, and that he's been promoted pretty aggressively too. Yep. I, I actually had a real hard time figuring out what to do with him. You're right. I, I think there's less concern if it is a, a position player, unless it's some becomes something where all right, this really is is racking up in, in a lot of different ways, and it seems like it's an injury prone player. But but yeah, I think it's more. It has much more of an impact on position players. I mean, if you just look at, you just look at the history of top ten position players who ranked among the top ten prospects in the game. I mean, those guys are gold. Uh, top twenty-five position prospects. I mean, those guys are about as sure of a bet as you're going to find in prospects. But for the pitchers, it's just not the same. Just not the same track record of success. I mean, what you said, John, is, is exactly right. If, if a player's been injured before, it's predictive that he's probably going to get injured again, especially if we're talking about an elbow or, or a shoulder problem. And it, it's not just it, it's not just that it, it affects their durability about, all right, well, is this guy going to start or is this guy going to be a better fit in the bullpen? I mean, if, if you have elbow or, or shoulder problems, that eventually that's, that's going to take a, a toll on the quality of, of your stuff, too. Yeah. I mean, there, there's guys who, you know, we, we take Tommy John surgery for granted sometimes, but there, there are guys who come back and, and they don't have the same quality John of stuff. Or even hello. if they're. Jesse Fox Exactly. Says I mean, it's, <laughs> and, and there's guys who, who've had, yeah, I mean, there's guys who've had injuries even without, you know, being cut on when it comes to their elbow or or their shoulder, and the stuff just isn't quite the same. I and mean, we, we expect fastball velocity to, you know, to decrease at, at an early age anyway, especially when we're talking about guys who have these consistent elbow and, and forearm pains. It's, uh, you know, it, it's not something that's, that's insurmountable. It's not something they can't necessarily overcome. But, yeah, those are our big red flags. It's probably why my, my list tend to be more – more hitter heavy where, you know, and I think teams are looking at it kind of the same way, especially when it comes to making their amateur signings, whether it's in, in the draft where, where a lot of teams are trying to focus on getting the big bats, especially at the college level early on, uh, and then hoping they can get pitchers later in the draft. And, and it's, it's certainly true on the international side where you know, the most of the top bonuses on, on the international amateur side are, are going to the position players and teams are figuring, you know, we can – you can find arms elsewhere and, and develop them for, for cheaper costs. Yeah, the, 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 to me, the, those are the two hardest pieces of information to get sometimes, injuries and, and makeup. And uh, it definitely catches cash can as, in some ways, but uh, I definitely feel between the amateur, the continuum that we do, I feel like we work very hard to get as much of that information as we can. 
package it together in the prospect handbook, then sift through it all and digest it all with these somewhat different viewpoints and arrive at a final top 100 prospect list. Uh, so we hope everyone enjoyed the list. We hope you enjoyed the show on Friday. This was a fun podcast to get into some of that kind of philosophy without you know delving necessarily into the list. Um, anything any that you guys wanted to say before we uh, wrapped it up? Uh, Apologies for my coughs that occasionally are happening during this. Yeah, you know, sorry, guys. JJ, I'm going to make you go back and edit the whole hour-long podcast plus and edit all that out. Uh, we do thank JJ for editing it, so we don't check off lost podcast on John Manuel Bingo. That would have uh, that would have been a disappointing loss of all of our time. Um, but great stuff. I enjoyed it, guys. And uh, of course, uh, you can always email us at podcast at baseballamerica.com. I still get those emails. Ninety nine percent spam right now. So. I, the, the better way to go is to tweet at us at Matt Eddie BA, at JJ Coop 36, at Ben Badler. I'm at John Manuel BA for all those guys. We'll see you on the next Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.